Hello and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host Rebecca McKendry and with me wearing a schnazzy burb shirt. I think I got you that for your birthday many, one year. Many, many years ago. Christmas. Yeah. I was like a decade ago. Yeah, is Elric Kane. It's my only shirt. How's it going? It's your only one. Only you know, s- somebody on our new YouTube page, because this show has now come to YouTube, which is awesome, um, had kind of challenged us to wear different t-shirts each show. I do that anyway. I've never um, worn the same shirt, I, I feel like, ever in my life. Really? I think I could go maybe 15 shows. Um, we're going to have to get some sponsorship here. Yeah. Like, I feel like we're going to have to reach out. Fright Rags, Cavity Colors, you know, we're on YouTube now. We need different shirts. I do I love I your shirt. Di- Danger Diabolic. Thank I you. love that. Yeah. My, my dia- I realized um, that it's now like my eyeballs and then eyeballs here, like staring yeah. outwards. So yeah, it's like double looking at you. But yeah, I've got my um, Danger Diabolic shirt going tonight. So, which I love this movie and you've got burbs and we're ready to rock with some new films that we saw. And I'm excited to dig in on my summer book reads as well. Plus, we finally got Daniel Krauss on the show. I've been wanting to have him on since like, literally, it's been like 10 years. I feel like I'd been trying to book him on like Killer POV. I think I think Rodders that's when I first mentioned him. I Because I remember yeah. the word Rodders. I didn't remember necessarily his name at the time. Rodders and then the link later to Shape of Water. He has been your white whale. And today you made it happen. We finally got him. Yeah. No, he and I have been talking forever because after Killer POV, where I had talked about how much I loved Rodders, like, he emailed me or messaged me on Twitter and was like, thanks for reading my book. And we've been corresponding forever. So finally get to have him on the show today, which is awesome. But first, we watched a couple of fun, new, exciting movies. Shall we kick off with Cobweb? Yeah, let's kick off with Cobweb, which we had heard. I know it was like a a script that got a lot of attention early on by a writer we got to meet at a festival earlier this year, Chris Thomas Devlin, um, who we met, who did the new Chainsaw uh, adaptation i guess you'd call it more than we we hung out with him at the seattle film festival which was awesome that was a really fun weekend it was really fun and i really liked the chainsaw adaptation and Mm -hmm. i I just had heard this was a script that got a lot of attention i didn't know anything about it when i watched it and I, i guess a lot of the comparisons to barbarian are like correct in the sense of uh something a setup that turns into something else that turns into something it reinvents but, itself like four but times. that's about it because like barbarian's yeah. a movie that blows the doors off right like from from 20 minutes on it's just like doing something so big in that way and that's one of the things cobweb is quieter and weirder and at times maybe it doesn't not all the connections completely work but it's i found it to be uh, a bit of more of a sleeper. Like this is a movie that yeah. I, a lot of people I talked to, I saw somebody who was their favorite movie of the year when I watched it with them. And I, I think one of the things that makes it mean, made me really notice it was knowing that the director had done the Marianne Netflix show, which is one of the creepiest shows ever mm-hmm. and, and has a, has a distinct directing style, which sometimes is enough for me, like with certain movies where I'm like, Ooh, and you'll see it in like the dream scene in this movie. It's one of the creepiest things I've seen Holy this year. Shit. This, I, this sequence for me yeah. was one of the scariest things I have seen in years. Like there were moments in talk to me that I felt got yeah. close, but this, that was my takeaway from this movie. Parts of it worked for me. Parts of it didn't work. Some of the connective, I, I love kind of the final act I thought yeah. was a lot of fun. Um, I loved where it went. And so I really dug into that. Some of the connective tissue of, you know, cer- there were certain holes that I was like, but wait, why does, why did they... But that said, that fucking sequence is worth you renting it alone. There is a dream sequence in it that was just fucking, it was beautifully shot. Yeah. It was beautifully directed the way that the camera work worked in it. That, 
the the hallway sound it was just the whole and thing it reminds me that reminded me of marianne the the if mm-hmm. you like that creepy style lizzie kaplan and this yeah. is really fascinating um but this is a movie that like is worth talking about at the top not just because i think it's one of the better horror films of the year because i do i think it's definitely one of the most entertaining things i've seen um because it keeps kind of like i said reinventing itself but yeah it's also just because it was just the release was so strange Don't. it was like it was in theaters but it would only for play. Two days. Well, no, no, it was on for a couple of weeks, but it was only playing at like 1030 at night. 11 o'clock at night. And yeah. Like it was just Elric strange. and I kept going to see it. And every single time we looked, it was like, it's still only at 1030. And then it went down to where it was only playing at one theater in LA. And it was still only at 1030 at night. And we were like, why would you, that's such like, a, just if you ran it at eight, wouldn't you sell more tickets? Like it was just a weird choice. So we never ended up seeing it in the theater because 10 30 at night no and there's no way it was being platformed in a way that was getting attention and then what's craziest is it's a halloween film it's literally set at halloween and i feel like this movie i mean maybe i'll get a real you know another life in a couple months but it just feels like this is an end of september start of october movie through and through every every element yeah. of it is perfect for that and so and it came out just if people don't realize it came out the weekend of oppenheimer and barbie but yeah. that's when they decided they would like you can't counter program to that weekend because Oppenheimer and Barbie are already counter programmed to each other. So you've already they've got all the bases. So it was just so I, my heart breaks a little bit for those involved because it you know they're it's off to a bad start. But it does reminds me of your next not movie wise, but in the feeling of oh this movie ten years from now is going to be way more popular than it is today. Mm-hmm. It just has that yeah. all those elements to it. Uh, yeah, it's got some really good qualities to it, even with the the holes that I, I kind of had questions about. I still walked away saying, OK, this is one of the best I've seen so far this year. Um, So, yeah, it's there's something really fun and charming about where it goes and how it gets there that I really liked. And at no point was I not completely kind of engaged in thinking like, oh, my God, I have to see where this goes. And I love how bonkers it gets. Because it starts so it basically and just really quickly for anyone, if you know nothing, it's about a young boy in the family house and you're you know from frame one you're like is this their parents or is this like a sinister type situation you really don't know what kind of movie you're watching his parents just feel really strict and weird they won't let him go trick-or-treating he's not allowed to carve pumpkins like there's just a lot of of kind of weirdness in the family and if it had just stayed in that lane i don't think i would have loved it i would have been like it's okay like i that's how i was feeling at that point in the movie and then it just kept taking kind of leap upon leap and by the end i was like oh okay come on this is just too fun not to not to give praise to it's six ninety nine right now on Do Amazon, it. It. so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, yeah, there's some really fun stuff in there. Okay, so did you see something else new? Well, yeah, I saw I saw a few new ones, but the one more worth putting up the top because we were another one we were meant to see together, like literally multiple weeks. Then you got sick, and I went yesterday at the end of my day, uh, like where I am, because I didn't want to not see it in a theater because I just had a feeling that it was going to be like a theater thing, and that is uh, another one causing a lot of people mixed results uh last voyage of demeter or demeter i'm not sure demeter I uh, think. by andre but Overall. i like the way you said it demeter. You put a different emphasis on a syllable uh, so yeah i think you'll I, I think you'll really like it for one uh, i know i will i'm your, so excited I, to see this and i love andre's work. yeah i also kind of felt like people even though it's not the same movie it's the kind of movie we don't get very often which is like overlord where it's like kind of big and bold and when you get to the heart it's like really crazy but the the heart I'm, I'm kind of surprised i have some really hardcore horror fans who didn't friends 
who really didn't like this movie. And when I'm watching, it, it's like I can understand not loving the script and some of the character stuff, especially lead characters and stuff that might just seem a little fake or something. But man, the horror all the way through. There is not a weak shot of the creature. There's not a weak moment that the creature's in. It is an incredible creature design. It's such a great throwback to see a version of Dracula that's creepy, scary, grotesque, uh, just mean. There isn't an ounce of goodness to this thing. It's just pure awfulness. And I thought that was... Is it so, CG'd or is it practical? Uh, uh, there's, I'm sure there's CG like when it's flying or something, but but it's there's a dude in there, a dude who, if you look him up, he's, he's always in a lot of these movies, like uh, even Conjuring movies and things like that. He it's it's such a great looking creature and it's got Liam Cunningham as the captain and he's the guy from Game of Thrones who I thought was very good and I gotta tell you sometimes we've we've known uh for locally because he would do go to trivia and stuff but David Dasmalian has obviously mm-hmm. been in a lot but in the last year like I I noticed him before and I was like he's oh he's good but in the last year I mean I've seen him in like six things where he's he was in boogeyman, boogeyman. he's got um late night with the devil coming up he was in boston with strangler, boston as, the stra- strangler. As, the baddie. as the baddie no literally he's it exploded yeah and it was just one of those things where you see someone in enough very different roles like some you know mm-hmm. where i was like fuck he's really freaking good and um so i definitely and i think he's got a really fun role in this he's just like the second in command on the ship but i i just i love the world it reminded me uh of that showtime what was that um fx series on the ship with the kind of Wendigo type thing a couple years ago. Oh, that was, oh gosh, what was the, the name of something, that? It was uh, the Terror. The terror. It, it's kind yeah. of like that. It's not quite, I mean, that tone might have suited this even more. Like if, if this probably could have suited being a one season <laughs> show like that. And that way you could have had even more time. Uh, but there's nothing in it that feels cheap or rushed. And so sometimes when you see reviews, you're like, oh, did you guys see the same thing I just saw? Because that was really freaking fun and well put together and handsomely mounted so it's like i don't know it feels like people have been a bit dismissive and how often do we get a true like full-on dracula like this like it's a salem's lot dracula but even even more grotesque and even more uh kind of messed up i, I thought it was really cool like again sometimes there'll be stuff in the scripts where you're like okay yeah it seems a little bit obvious and uh but i know i i had a really good time with this and i don't know when the next time i'll get to see well i'll get to see nosferatu <laughs> robert eggers is nosferatu soon yeah. enough i guess uh but i, I think you'll really... dig it I was really hoping that this would help the plight of period pieces Um, because any place you go right now, studio wise, that is like the one thing that you hear is no period pieces. And this is pre-strike right now. Nobody's pitching anything, but that was kind of always the thing that you would hear is like, yeah, we're really looking for heart, no period pieces. Um, And that sucks. That's kind of limiting. Yeah. You want all options. you want all options. And so I was really hoping that this would kind of open that door back up. I was hoping the same. What was that awesome werewolf movie from right at the end of the pandemic that we saw that was a period piece oh, yeah. that nobody saw? We saw it. We were the only ones in the theater. Uh, it was like the curse or a curse. The curse I, I still think that, that the effects in that yeah. thing were so rad. Like It was so cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and unexpected and another- for the kind of movie it was. You know, and another period piece that I'd been like, maybe this will change it. And then nah, it didn't I, I actually finally on this topic, I just last night was doing the new Beverly calendar and they're playing Dead Silence by James Wan. And you had recently mm-hmm. rewatched. I did not yep. like that movie at all when it came out and watched it again a few nights ago and, and like freaking so loved fun. it. And I think it's because. At the time, we wanted a different kind of horror. Like you, we were kind of getting sick of bigger things and and throwbacks, and you just kind of wanted something real and new. And and then suddenly you get all this A twenty four stuff, and you have like 20, 10 years of very much grounded horror. And I was like watching this that night, going, "Oh, this is exactly what I want right now." Like something it's so fun throwback with period costumes in the in the uh, for the monster character for the woman and. 
she's yeah, like vaudevillian yeah we're back in the 1920s and it's so no fun. it is and, yeah. that, and that's just further proof that like movies do not change you might judge a movie at one point but you will change and at some point you might come back to a movie and go oh my god i love that movie now and that's always fun yes. i love that about movies definitely um so i will quickly discuss the tv show that i saw and then um yeah i've got another new movie as well so i started watching surreal estate mm. which is a really good title yeah. this is on sci-fi and i was led to it because i watched chucky like i uh -huh. i love the show yeah, it's chucky. a good show That's yeah. honestly um, it's one of my favorite horror TV shows running right now, um, especially since Nick Antosca has been working on it. I just it's it's great. And uh, so I, while I was watching it, there was an ad running for another sci fi show called Surreal Estate, which is about an, a real estate company who specializes in haunted houses. And the idea is like you're never going to be able to sell the haunted house, especially if there's been deaths there. If it's, you know, the town legend, if everybody knows about this incredibly fucked up house, you're not going to sell it. You're not going to get the price you want. Let us take care of your problem. And then we'll be your real estate company and sell it for you, which is a hell of a hook. Um, so yeah. And so I only got a couple episodes into this, but I loved it because it's a procedural show in that each week they're kind of with a different client and a different ghost and a different scenario and a different house but it's these real estate agents hmm. and there's just something so fun to it it's got a darkly comedic tone so i won't say kind of where it goes because i'm only three episodes in but i will continue watching this because i've really enjoyed the first couple of episodes i apparently just got renewed for a second season which was one of the the things that i read this week but yeah is, it's fun is sci-fi because i uh for no, some people is sci-fi go on peacock is that where you because I, I found Chucky on Peacock. I watch these so through and this is such like convoluted streaming yeah. talk through my Roku. I have a sci fi app and that's where I watch Chucky and that's where I found this as well. I have a Peacock and account in Iceland that I reroute using my. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this is too nerdy, but I do think some of that it's maybe ends nerdy. up on. Yeah, I mean, you need to literally have 100 channels to watch three shows now, so. It's true. It's true. I just, I need one thing where everything goes there, but I hoped that that was my Roku where I now have all these apps on my Roku, but still that doesn't work because things, certain things will be on the Paramount app on my Roku, but then it's different from Paramount plus and same, like I've got, you know, my NBC, but then that's different from Peacock. It's like, it's all kind of, I still don't know where anything goes. I just, I just have to search for everything. And then they change like where from was changed, oh, yeah. it changed. as it went yeah. to the second season. And I was like, it was on epics. Yeah. And now I think it's on, I don't even remember where it was last season. Um, yeah, I can't keep up. I just search and then I watch and that's it. And then I forget that I joined Paramount plus and then, you know, a hundred some dollars later, I'm suddenly like, wait, I own Paramount Plus. What? So, yeah. yeah. But surreal estate, if you've been kind of missing evil in its downtime, God, I that's I keep thinking, you know, I need the strike to end just for evil because it's not getting made right now. I need evil to come Forget back. Forget your own that career. Is, you just want my, <laughs> I need evil and from back immediately. Um, no, no, fight the good fight, go strike. But yeah, I need evil and from back, y'all. But if you're kind of missing evil while it's on hiatus, Surreal Estate was a nice little Band-Aid for that. Um, speaking of streamers, uh, this was interesting because uh, there was a movie that I'd heard good things about 
and I was excited to see it. And then I saw the poster, not to diss on the poster, but just sometimes whatever cover art, not not even the poster, the the art that ends up on the streamer, you know what I mean? The little box art. Mm-hmm. And that was a movie called The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster, uh, which was interesting because it's actually Crypt TV, even though I know it's going to be on Shutter eventually because it says Shutter. It's actually developed through Crypt TV, which is interesting because I don't know if they've had many features yet because they specialize in shorts. They have. Yeah, I've seen oodles of their short films. They have great stuff. So, but yeah, I don't recall any features. Initially, I really wanted to see this. And then I and then I just kind of time passed. And I was like, oh, I forgot to see it. And you don't get to it. My friend Dick uh, kept saying it's a great movie. And I was like, OK, got to watch it. Watch it this weekend. Fantastic filmmaking this is one of those movies where if you watch horror noir the great documentary about black uh, horror filmmakers this is the kind of movie where you're like this is a next generation film it's not just that it's a good horror film it's just a really really well directed film it has real vision real voice because the voices if felt to me like if i if spike lee's like second movie after she's got to have it was a small independent horror film it feels like it would be like this because the voices of the characters it's this uh very a brainy young girl who goes to a school across town, not in her neighborhood where uh, so everyone makes fun of her going to like the white fancy school because she wants to be a scientist. She's really brilliant. Uh, She goes to the school. She's having troubles there because she is smarter than her teachers, basically. And she has this theory uh, that she's talking about at the voiceover at the start, which is basically that death is a disease. And if it's a Mm -hmm. disease, then it can be cured. And I want to cure it because everyone in my neighborhood keeps being shot to death by gang violence and uh, each other. And her brother has just died when the movie opens and she it literally opens with his dead body being dragged out of frame because she is collecting bodies in this like locker area and just experimenting it's just a a frankenstein story but it's done in a way that just if this had not been well directed i probably would have gone oh it was a cool attempt at doing it but it's so well directed uh but manny Mm -hmm. j story someone I, i don't know first time seeing and stuff that I was just uh you're you're just in you'll like trust me it's one of those ones where I look at the art and it's her holding a button and it's just like oh is this gonna be a kid's thing or something I didn't know what it was gonna be it's very I adult. thought it was oh, I no. thought it was kind of more um kids versus aliens why yeah, total opposite bonkersness yeah, no, okay it's wow. like girl okay. in the hood taking on the hood with her monster but in a way that's done through a, through a serious vein uh but it's never preach you know how movies can actually say something but not be preachy and it's a tough line mm-hmm. i think a lot of people fail when they try to do that and this film's able to do it uh i, I don't know it's just one of the better films it almost transcends just whether it's horror or not because it's a mixture of that and kind of <laughs> social drama but it's uh it's a really good movie and i if i can help other people get over the hump of being like eh, i don't need to see it like trust me this should be in your year's best conversation. So uh, Angry Black Girl, right now I paid to see it, but I like outside of having Shudder, but it had Shudder at the top. So I have to assume it's coming to Shudder at some point. Um, it was an RLJ release yeah. as well. I remember Mark talking about it. So I have a feeling, yeah, it's heading. Really good. Shudder. And it's always exciting. When you watch this, you're like, oh, this person's going to make another great movie. So there's no doubt mm-hmm. in my mind. So yeah, put it on, on the list for sure. Fantastic. Um, So last night I watched The Strays on Netflix. Mm. This is a new film that just came, I believe, last Friday. And I had been on a film shoot, not any type of, you know, struck film shoot. It was a documentary film shoot this week. And I was with there. I was there with a bunch of other horror nerds. And while I was there, there were a group of people talking about this movie and about how, you know, Netflix, we've talked about this on the show before, how their horror is kind of hit or miss. Like, sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, this is brilliant, our house. And then sometimes I'm like, "Uh, 
what kind of fell apart a little bit. Um, but so I had heard a bunch of people talking about this as there's something really interesting to it. So I went home, immediately started watching The Strays. This is a British film. It is about, we open with this woman and she's on the phone and she is clearly at her wits end. She's crying. She's talking about how she has no more money. She's bankrupt. She doesn't know what to do anymore. She's like, I I don't know what to do. I have to get out of here. She slams down the phone and then cut to, she is now living in a beautiful neighborhood, incredibly wealthy, doing her makeup, has two kids, a husband. She's incredibly wealthy. And we don't really know what transpired in between or how she went from like this impoverished lifestyle where she just one day decided, I'm done. I'm getting out of here to being in this very kind of upper crusty, very white neighborhood. She's African-American. And midway, I probably like our first act, these two, she, she lives this very refined life. She lives this very manicured life. She's running charity events. Um, she seems she's an administrator at a really hoity um, private school, like a charter school. And she just lives this very kind of refined, very exclusive, wealthy life. And then one day, two people from her past just kind of show up out of nowhere and that's when things go off the rails. I won't say any more than that, except that at that point, it transitions from kind of being this drama to funny games. Like it gets a little bit more kind of funny games into more of like a psychological torture and it gets good. I liked where the third act went. It took a while for me to get into this movie, but I did like where the third act went. This is on Netflix now. So yeah, definitely check this one out. It is not horror in the sense of there's going to be, you know, crazy disemboweling at the end. There's no monster that's going to show up. There's not a ghost. It is very much like a psychological torture, like funny game style. But that said, this was, it was a compelling watch. I'm still not sure of the messaging, which was fun. There's definitely some statements in there on race, gentrification, you know, being true to yourself, things like that. But I like the fact that it's 24 hours later and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the messaging was and how it was coming across. Like you feel it, but I'm, it wasn't as clear as I feel like it is in a lot of other films. I didn't walk away from it going, oh, this is exactly, that was a statement on drug addiction like I did with Talk To Me. Um, so I kind of like that I'm still figuring it out. But even today when I was in class, because it's on Netflix, like all my students had watched it and immediately were like, oh my gosh, did you watch Strays? And they were really excited to talk about it. So anything that can kind of get people jazzed to talk about horror, I'm in. So not 100% horror, not going to go full horror, but definitely kind of falls in line with more of a psychological torture film by the end. That is The Strays on Netflix right now. There's one I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on. I don't like to spend too much time if I if one doesn't connect to me, but there was a new brand new Shutter one called Bad Things by Stuart Thorndike. And it's there's a lot about it. There was like definitely individual moments where I was like, ooh, intrigued, but it never came together for me. And I, by the end, I was just like, you know, that feeling where you don't believe it, like whatever kind of genre it is, right? If I don't buy it. Uh, but there's a couple of things worth recommending. It's a group of girls, uh, friends go to a hotel that one of them has just inherited or it sounds like she's inherited and her girlfriend is telling her, you know, like we should 
keep this and run it and this could be our new thing and there's a lot of relationship a lot of characters have cheated on each other and it's you know that kind of small group of four of them uh here uh kind of doing not treating each other the best way it kind of felt like new next gen shining light Mm -hmm. if you know what i mean um so like the actual characters were kind of characters you haven't seen in movies like this that much and i thought that on that level that was super interesting um and like felt like a very kind of new progressive like viewpoint on a movie uh, it kind of keeps changing genres. It's set up like, a, like I said, The Shining or a supernatural hotel kind of movie. And you'll see these kind of ghost kind of moments. But then at a certain point, it just kind of goes straight slasher for a while. And I was like, so it felt so weirdly indecisive to me that I never really understood why the things were happening. But there is one element that I think for some people might be really worth watching, which is uh, you see these flashbacks to her mother who keeps saying she's on her way, but we don't, you know, she's not getting to this hotel and it's played by Molly Ringwald. And, oh, wow. and so it's pretty interesting. The couple scenes that she's in and one of them's pretty graphic kind of messed up. They're really good. And they're really interesting mm-hmm. scenes. So it, it, as a whole, it didn't come together, but I also get the feeling sometimes it, I don't know if I'm the goal for this movie. Like, you know, it might be like someone who's 22 right now might really pick up on some of the things in this movie. So I, I definitely wanted to still mention it because uh, it is just, I think it just hit. I think it was at Tribeca and then it just hit Shudder. Um, so that's called Bad Things. But I'd be curious to hear nice. your thoughts on that one. I It's on my queue as long, as well as the new Shudder release, Birth, Rebirth. Yeah, that hasn't come to Shudder yet. So that's another example where it's, it's on in theaters. The streamers it's actually in they... theaters right now. Oh, it is? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's because I think it's, doing like i think i I think zimmerman had said as one of his favorite films he's worked on or something so i'm i am excited to see that one as well yeah fantastic okay yeah now that one i definitely want to check out um so that takes me to my summer book report Uh which is what i did a lot of and i'll we can volley back and forth because i know you have a couple more titles to do um so what i did a lot this summer because i was on strike was read And we, you know, I would go camping, I would spend my evenings just reading. And then the other thing that I did was teach summer session at USC, I taught my summer horror boot camp. And uh, I have an hour and a half commute each way, because it's only 11 miles, I'll tell people that it's 11 miles, but in LA, that's 90 minutes on the five. And Do you have so a whistle I, and short shorts and a Sergeant Slaughter hat? Because I just imagine it's your boot, Becca's boot camp. It's <laughs> Becca's boot camp. I only I call it that. that because it's so um, immersive where you're there. You're like with me for like, it's like seriously like 10 hours a week that the students oh, yeah. have to spend with me for like six weeks straight. And within six weeks, they make like four different films. So it's real immersive is the only reason I call it that is it's like you're thrown in, you're with all of us and you're spending your summer with these people. So you don't have. Um, a whistle is where you're i need a, you whistle. Need a whistle i feel like, I, feel like you... I need that shorty shorts i don't know if i'm even allowed to wear that as a professor but i feel like i i just need like a sergeant slaughter yep. hat that feels the hat and whistle like would be enough but because i spent so much of my summer you know four days a week commuting i had all this time to listen to audiobooks as well so my summer horror book report. Um, I'm going to start with Riley Sager because I basically read every Riley Sager book that comes out. And I had talked about last summer, I read House Across the Lake. And yeah. uh, it was actually, it was Mark Ward from RLJ that kind of got me into Riley Sager to begin with. These are horror adjacent, I'll call them. They're not always 
straight horror. Some of them are like House Across the Lake is definitely horror, but they're all really bonkers, sleazy and thriller. If nothing else, they'll all have like these real strong thriller ads, all real kind of just ephemeral read. It's nothing too heavy. You can read them in a couple of weeks. It's like beach reading. And I will read every single one of his books. So this summer I read The Only One Left and uh, Lock Every Door. The Only One Left is his brand new one. These were okay for me. I really liked Lock Every Door. Um, Dick also agreed with me that this one, um, Dick Grummer, because I was talking with him about trivia, about it at trivia. Do we think he he's now the most really famous fun. person in the world of podcasts who might not have been on a podcast? Like, like I feel <laughs> Why like- Why haven't we have him on yet? It'll never, I'm never having him on because he's listening. I want him to hear Dick, this and have his hopes and dreams. Dick, done. I'm going to have you on just to talk about Riley Sager with me. So. <laughs> but, but I do feel like he's had more mentions than any human ever. No, I think it's because we both talk with him about books and media all the well, time. He's my, na- so, yeah. he's my neighbor and we watch movies. Yeah. Together, so. And I talk with him about books at trivia and stuff like that. So um, Lock Every Door was a really cool setup where it's a woman takes a job working in a high rise apartment building. Um, and basically everybody in there is weird and nuts and it slowly kind of unravels. And yeah, there's a really cool twist at the end for this one. But this one was a really tight one. Um, I will mention one more before I throw it to you. I listened to both of those, by the way. Those were both audiobooks. I read House with Good Bones by T. Kingfisher. This is the second book I've read by her. I'd read the twisted ones during the pandemic. Um, it was actually one of my favorite pandemic reads. And uh, this one just came out, I think, in March. I loved this book, quite possibly one of my favorite of the summer. It's about a woman who is grown off, has her own career. She works as an entomologist. She uh, loses one of her gigs. So she decides to go home and spend the summer with her mother. And she gets there and her mother is kind of unraveling. And she's not sure if her mom has dementia or if there's something else happening. And then weird stuff starts happening around the house. It is a really cool gothic occult ghost story that takes place in the middle of the suburbs mm. and so this one it was really funny as well like it's written as a dark comedy so that is t kingfisher house with good bones this was by far one of my favorites of the summer uh, i'll throw back to well you let me do I'll a couple i, I did have books. one more movie but because you got me into the book mood let me just do that my couple that i because i was reading when i was traveling mostly i was reading this uh biography that i really loved on michael cimino the director of deer hunter and it was just too interesting not to sometimes i get lost in uh you know like a biography but uh i did read this i love this cover that only the youtube listeners will be able to see but this is probably one of my favorite covers in a very long I time i love Catriona Ward is yeah. amazing so the book is called sundial by Catriona Ward, and i'll tell you i was at an airport and I would never have known about this book, but the cover was so it's like this pink font and a pink. Uh, is it a fox or dog? I can't remember. It's like a leopard or a no, it's, it's a kind of dog yeah. that is part of the story that at some point. Mm. Um, but anyway, it's a really interesting, almost like a, especially at the start, it's almost like a female Dexter setup because you've got a woman who's worried about her daughter having these issues. She's like seems like very macabre and, you know, collects bones and all this. So she's worried she's going to hurt her other younger daughter. And there's some reason she believes that tied to her experiences growing up on this kind of commune type compound place called Sundial. And she takes her daughter back there to deal with this and the kind of the ghosts of the past stuff. And it's just very interesting book, I thought. And uh, that one definitely was, you know, it's always a happy accident when you don't know anything about a book and uh, you just pick it up. And the other one I just started, it's the one I was most excited to read this summer. And it is a guy who's been doing Michael Wehunt. I've been talking about him a bit. He 
Uh, this one's called The Inconsolables. It's his brand new uh, short story. So I just read the first short story, I think, last night. So I'm just diving in. I His Greener Pastures is one of my all-time favorite short story collections. He's a Georgia, a writer from Georgia, and he, has, he hasn't yet had his, um, you know, uh, not developing short stories and I think a small novella so far. So excited for when he writes that first, you know, big novel because he's was, freaking great. What was his name again? His name is Michael Weehunt. He did a short story I really wanted to turn into some sort of crazy movie from his first book called Greener Pastures. And they're all kind of like nature as horror kind of stories. They're all really interesting, very adult. This one I've just cracked open, so I don't know exactly. But so far, one really good vampire story at the start. So I just one of those writers to watch if you're into the writers like Tremblay and some of the people we've talked about in the past. Uh, Michael's definitely on the level, so... Uh, but that's my that's my only heart reading. So you you go on and then I'll end with one. More I'll thought. do a couple more. Yeah. So I read Black Tide by Casey Jones. This is total big apocalyptic horror with monsters oh, cool. in it. This one was fun. It wasn't my favorite book of the summer, but it's big bonkers. Like, I'm surprised there hasn't been a movie mm. of this yet, just because it is full apocalypse. It feels giant. And so this one was a fun read. Um, it wasn't real cerebral, but it was just a really fun read. Um, I'll go to the wicked, which Ooh, is I like that by, cover. yeah, this is a great cover, um, by James Newman. This is actually from a press that I love that I I've been working with them, just kind of supporting them online for years called apex press. And I, found this book through that 101 horror books to read before you're murdered that I talked about earlier on the show. This was one of the ones mentioned. And so I I immediately was like, okay, well, I have to read that. This is like awesome 1980s throwback demon horror about this demon who is basically plaguing a small town. His name is Moloch or Moloch, I think it's pronounced. And it feels like an 80s film, like it felt like um, Witchboard, like that demon level from Witchboard. Um, so there was just something really, really fun to that one. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and then I'll also talk about, I got a couple left, uh, Maybe Fly or Mayfly. I'm not yeah. exactly sure of the pronunciation by C. Uh, J. Lead. This one, I feel like you would really like because this is basically it's like a big love letter to Los Angeles from the perspective of a female American psycho. Mm. She works at Disney. They never say Disney mm-hmm. exactly. But yeah, she works at Disney um, and has all these kind of wild fantasies and then it kind of becomes like a female serial killer american psycho all about los angeles as well los angeles is just kind of all over this novel so yeah you go and oh, yeah, i'll hit one. another three i got a couple more yeah my last one is a movie that um it was just like an interesting one action thriller genre brand new movie called god is a bullet um and it had I- heard so much about this good art well some interesting stuff a it's directed by nick cassavetes john cassavetes son who's been directing Mm -hmm. movies for you know last 20 years and he's made you know he's he's made some like really uh intense kind of like movies like his dad and he also made the fucking notebook a very popular Mm -hmm. you know uh weepy uh this is a this is one of those movies that sometimes it's trying too hard to be hardcore you know those movies like where everyone's got facial tattoos and they're satanists and the Satanists in this movie look more like Mad Max characters. I don't know if I ever believed them as a actual group of Satanists. But anyway, the idea is you've got the guy, Nicholas, Nikolai Koster Waldo, the guy from Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister. And he is playing this very lame 
cop he's who's uh, got an ex-wife and his daughter they are there's a very violent opening where his ex-wife is murdered by these uh, intruders and they steal the satanists and they steal his daughter and that's one of the opening scenes and he so it's like a taken yeah it's taken but but, it, but it's so but then it's basically he goes well, I don't know anything about the. He's kind of square, and he knows nothing about this world. And they're like, you know, it's it's one. Of, that's why I don't really believe it's the eight angle. Like, I wish they weren't Satanists and just like evil cult. But the word Satanist kind of, I think, muddies what they actually do because uh, there is one cool scene where they're trying to do some sort of sacrifice thing. It's pretty. It gets the violence in this movie is probably the most violent thing I've seen this year in terms of the scenes that go violent and the kind of mm-hmm. the damage to bodies. So on that level, it's actually very entertaining. Anyway, he needs to find help. In the opening scene, a young girl had been kidnapped from the past by the same gang, and then now it cuts to her now, and she is a girl who's in therapy. She has escaped the gang, and it and it's the reason to watch the movie, which is mm-hmm. uh, new queen of all horror cinema, in my opinion, uh, Micah Monroe, who has just been crushing it from like that one you liked last year, Significant Others, uh, to, you know, all the way back to it follows. Uh, she is almost almost unrecognizable. If I didn't see her name, I don't know if wow. I would pick it because she's so thin. She has tattoos all over her face, a shaved head, and blonde bleach blonde hair. Just you know, she's this ex uh, escaped uh, victim from this cult, and she feels bad about what's happened to his kids so she basically says i'll help you because she wants to get revenge on the gang leader which is very interesting because the gang leader of the cult is played by this actor carl glusman and the reason why that's significant is because he's her husband in watcher micah monroe and him they're the couple but in this he's totally different he's like tattooed a total nightmare of a of a kind of maniac uh, manson-esque kind of dude uh and they go on the they start going on their journey and it's so weird because they go to jamie fox is in this movie suddenly tattooed one arm it's a very strange movie because it's like really kind of pushing the hardcore everything's everything's extreme and jamie fox is kind of this guy he's somewhere in between gray area kind of character he, he'll help them but he's also on the side of the bad guys he's a gun kind of gun runner drug pusher kind of dude and they get all these help there's all these storylines but here's the kicker this movie which has a plot of 75 to 85 minutes is two and a half hours long and that's why it took me so long to push play because i was like wait a minute what like how can this movie justify it can't like it has a couple subplots i was gonna is it sustainable for that Uh, oh no the movie yeah you can totally watch it and i enjoy it because it's like it is so hyper violent and crazy that I found it entertaining in that way. Did I believe it? Not really uh, at a lot of points, but I did have a lot of fun, but but it is too long. And when it's the moments, you know, like if you had read the script, it's they'll have these sub like they'll be on this mission, this a story to get revenge, basically. And they'll cut back to where he's the town he's from and some of the backstory of some of the other characters. And you're like, you do not need this shit. And because there's celebrities like January Jones is in one of those stories. You're like, no, no, all that shit would have had to been cut for this movie to be like streamlined to maybe 90 minutes i think this would have been an absolute banger uh i think even at two and a half i actually did enjoy it and do recommend it to people who like kind of revenge films cult movies with crazy satanists you know it's just it's it's pretty deplorable you just hit a lot of my deplorable characters that you can't help but go yeah why not and also michael Monroe is just she's cool like she keeps challenging herself with these like very different uh types of roles like this is not the girl from watcher um 
I don't know. I was surprised, but but the t- it, it's the kind of movie. It's right now. I paid to watch it on streaming, but I know six months from now it will be the movie that goes on Netflix and is number one that week. You know, on Netflix because it'll be like, oh my god, what is the extreme new? It'll be like the RRR yeah. where it explodes. Totally, there, totally. not quite. A, it won't be as popular as that, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so that's God is a bullet. Uh, again, it might great title as well. Yeah, and they they do say it out loud. <laughs> Jamie Fox. Oh, oh, it's, it's, it's like God line. is a bullet. <laughs> Remember that old, there was this old SNL sketch where it was like, I'm the person who says the quintessential line. Oh, nice. We got to get out of Africa. Oh, nice. Now I got, I got to find that sketch somewhere. But that's, but, that's yeah. my last one, but I, I did like it. I thought it was, I thought it was a cool thriller. Excellent. Okay. Jumping in on a couple of my last summer reads leading up to my, my favorite one. Okay. I read, cause I know you read the first one. I read the second volume of nice house on the oh, lake, cool. which. You got to read. I won't get into this because I have to give spoilers from the first book. And the first book is so fucking yeah. good. And I loved all this, the twists in that. And I don't want to give anything away because I definitely didn't see it coming in the first book. But this is just my, hey, Elric, you need to read the second oh, volume of yours. Nice House on the Lake. It's great. It is absolutely great. Um, I read a really cool Lovecraftian. Uh, it was two novellas put together. So it was a novel, but it was made up of two novellas called A Lush and Seething Hell mm. by John Horner Jacobs. And this was super Lovecraftian cosmic horror, but done in a really smart way. The first one was set during the Argentinian War, um, mm. the Dirty War. And then the second one was it was also more historic, but it was just like it was Lovecraft with never referencing Lovecraft. It was just mm. super cosmic and and just really smart the way that it handled it that was lush and seething hell um this nana was a novella i picked up at some point i googled like good horror novellas you've never heard of and this came up on it this is nana by mark taus i'm really not sure how i even found this i've never heard of the publisher before but it was fun it was about a guy um a young boy spending the weekend with his nana his grandma and she tells him that she's going to go take him to this like bingo night is kind of the best way to describe it. It's like a community, like, you know, VFW event with all of her elderly friends. And he's like, oh, God, this is going to suck. And it gets all types of fucked up, really fucked hmm. up. So this one, surprisingly fun read. And the one that was definitely my favorite book of that I read this summer is not a recent one. It was from 2020 is one called The Return by Rachel Harrison. And I've read a couple of Rachel Harrison books at this point, but I absolutely loved this. I listened to this on audiobook and it was a phenomenal read about a group of friends, really tight knit group of friends. And one of them just disappears on a hike, just completely disappears. They never find the body. No one really knows what happens. And they have a funeral for her. Everybody just assumes that she's gone. Two years pass. They move on with their lives. Wake up one morning and she's sitting on the front porch. And she's worse for wear, but she has no memory of anything that happened to her in the two years that she was gone. Or so she says. And so all of the girls decide, okay, well, we've got to make her remind her that she's still got friends, that she's part of the group. We're worried about her. She's suffering from depression. Does she really not remember anything? So they decide to take her on a girl's weekend at this really isolated hotel in the Catskills. And it all starts to unravel there. And it's, it was honestly, I loved this. Like I want to see a movie version of this and where it goes in the third act. It was a cool new horror concept that I had not seen before. So that is The Return by Rachel Harrison. I thought it was just a really fun, tight, compelling um, listen that made me. It's one of those, like, I always listen on my commute. I can tell I'm enjoying it if I get home. And I'm like, 
I'll do the dishes just so I can keep mm-hmm. listening once I'm home. That's like a good sign. Elric, you have to start listening to audiobooks. I, I say that how. as a class. How do you do it? That how do you start? Listen to audiobooks. Start. I'm not, I said this when we were on break, but start with nothing but black and teeth. The the narrator on that's really tight. It's a fast listen. It's a really tight story. So that was a really good kind of gateway. If you're not into audiobooks, start with nothing but black and teeth. It was a good one. Okay. This year, before the year okay. is over, I'm going to have listened to an audiobook, my first one. You need to. You definitely need to. They they changed my commute from me going, okay, I guess I'll listen to this podcast. Not that I have anything against podcasts. Keep listening to podcasts on your commute, but it let me mix it up a lot. And then once I was in on audiobooks, it kind of, my book, I, I always have this massive to watch DVD shelf and I have an equally large to read bookshelf that sometimes gets so large. I literally just have to take books off of it and put them on my bookshelf, even though I've never read them. It let me kind of mitigate that and mm. start decreasing it. So it's great. Audiobooks. Okay. What you got? What you got? Right. Oh, I'm done. You're Listen, done. We're ready for your number one. That was the return. Oh, that is your number the one. Then we're both. We're number one. We're past We've done it. it all. Yeah. Yeah. We have done it all. Well, you know what? Let's head into one of my other summer reads um, that I, I'm about halfway through. So we can't get spoilery on this. So, but I'm excited to see where it goes. The first half has been phenomenal. Let's bring on Daniel Krause with his new book, Whale Fall. I have been trying to get this next guest on for like years. Like I have been geeking out about his books, his writing, his comic books. Elric and I had a couple of weeks last fall where we were obsessed with autumnal. Um, And finally, with his new book, Whalefall, Daniel Krause is joining us tonight. Welcome, sir. Uh, It's yeah, it's been way too. It's taken way too long for this. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. No, we've been. uh, I mean, it's like been like seven or eight years, I feel like. Yeah, Daniel, we've been corresponding. I think like we started over Twitter, just DMing each other about like projects and books. And I was geeking out over Rodders. And then somehow he listened to the show when I talked about um, Oak Island, my my passion of like Curse of Oak Island. And then this blossomed into a long chain on the history of Oak Island and that TV show, which Elric has yet to watch. Haven't done it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know if I want want to recommend it or not <laughs> uh it's it it you know the funny thing the funny thing is that is i don't generally watch uh tv shows a lot i watch tons and tons of movies but I hardly ever watch tv shows same so it's a real peculiar thing that i've started watching oak island i probably got it from you becca i i uh, think i think your first one of your first emails about it to me was i watched this because you kept talking about it on the show and now i'm in and i'm hooked and i can't stop yeah and, and i think what i what i like about it is that it's what i like about it isn't the 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 what you're supposed to be involved in like i'm not yeah. all that concerned about if there's a treasure hidden on oak island what i like about it is kind of the the man versus nature element of it and how, and how there's like these people are destroying their finances and generations of people are ruining their lives, digging these holes to nowhere. It's like this weird kind of metaphor of like the senselessness of, of uh, humans trying to, to best the natural world. You have thought about this so much more than I ever have. And I've been with it since season one. I'm 
kind of in it for the treasure. Like I like the history <laughs> of the island and every single time Gary finds a button or, you know, some yep. weird coin, I'm like, oh, this is it. This is it. Um, but I'm also in it for the I will watch rich guys dig holes in the ground until the end of time. And every single season now I'm like drop cans. Like I'm not satisfied unless they're dropping cans into the ground. That's where oh, they yeah. put these giant tubes down to try to dig everything out. Elric's well, falling asleep. No, uh, Daniel's version of this sounds like a Terrence Malick movie. So now I'm like partially interested. His is like questioning the universe. And when you talk about it, it sounds like this like uh, trash show that I need TV dinners for. So I'm not sure where to fall. So it's both. Okay. It okay. Hey, perfect. You know? It is. Yeah, it's all. All how you approach it. Okay. It's everything. And no, I started watching this at season one and I, I they've been doing this for like a decade now. And I will continue to watch them dig holes in the ground to find a button. And I'm so there for it. <laughs> or this last season, they found pottery shards. And I was like, pottery shards? And it's like everything <laughs> on the show. So um, anyways, thus we digress into <laughs> our weird little um, side hobby. So Daniel, before we dig into whale fall, because I've been trying to talk to you for like a decade now, I want to go all the way back because I read Rotters, which was one of your very first books, but um, you had one before that, right? Monster Variations. How did yeah. you get started? Like, what was the day that you were just like, fuck it, I'm going to write a novel? How did that come about? Well, I mean, I grew up wanting to write novels, uh, you know, from really early age, from like first grade or something. But there wasn't, you know, it's easier to forget, like back in those days, especially if you lived in a small Iowa town like I did, there was no path to that. Like it was a complete fantasy. Like it's not that I didn't know any artists, it's that I didn't know anyone who knew anyone who knew anyone who knew any artists. Like it was like so far removed. So it was never really a, uh, uh, even though I was writing, you know, full novels by high school, I was just writing them and putting them in a drawer and not sh even sharing them with anyone. It was just something I was doing for me, which has held me in good stead in my career, actually. Um, writing still just sort of for myself and publishing being sort of just something that kind of has to happen with finances. Uh, but I actually, in my 20s, was involved in film. I was a documentary director. And I, made a, I directed a bunch of documentaries um, that played on like PBS and stuff like that. Um, nice. So I actually have a semi background in film there. Uh, but even though I made those documentaries mostly alone, uh, sometimes I'd have one crew member. It still wasn't like permanent enough for me. Uh, I really, really like working alone in my office. Like that's just what I love. So I kind of burned out on that a little bit and was like, maybe I should go back to my first love. And I have, you know, just sort of, I always hesitate to say this, but I have like the opposite of the hard luck publishing story. I just, I wrote a first novel and I got lucky and I got published by Random House and I've been in a decent, decent shape ever since then. Did you just blind submit it? Like, hey, I wrote this novel and just message people from there. Like, how did you first find yeah. Random House? Yeah, I mean... The key then and now is, you know, not finding Random House, it's finding an agent. Mm -hmm. So I found an agent just through like the slush process. Yeah, just blind submission. And then you give faith to that process because every other person I know is like, don't even bother. They're not going to respond. And so, yeah, you just give faith to that process. I mean, you, you almost have to like th there are a few people out there who have managed it without agents. But like generally the big 
now we're down to like five five publishers five publishers like, like they're not going to accept anything it's not from an agent mm -hmm. uh, so you have to have the agent first they're they're the big gatekeeper um you don't ever have to worry about or for good or bad approaching a publisher because they're not going to talk to you anyway they're only going to talk to the agents it's mm -hmm. similar in hollywood i'm assuming yeah it's pretty you can survive in hollywood without an agent or a manager but it's a lot harder i'll say yeah there's definitely it's a gatekeeper system yeah so after monster variation comes out i'd love to talk about routers because this is one that you know i've been in love with for a long time i felt like it didn't get um nearly enough acclaim and i kept wanting a tv show um mm -hmm. and so could you talk a little bit about where the concept for routers came out of because i find it so fast it's about grave diggers it's about a collection of grave diggers well more specifically mm -hmm. grave robbers yeah. grave robbers uh in, in theory grave diggers are just doing their job at a, at a that's true cemetery. no these people are are digging them back up now and it's kind of a father-son operation for part of it so yeah it's a about an a modern day underground network of grave robbers and they all operate in their own territories of the country and they're almost like a knighthood so it's mm -hmm. not it's not something that is these are villains these are actually and that was part of the challenge of writing it these are like knights and their shovels are like their swords and they have a code of ethics um and they approach digging bodies with a certain reverence uh and the the jewelry they take off of them you know it all sort of works into their uh, it there's a there's a whole um mindset behind it there's a whole uh, uh again code behind it and but there's this one rogue grave robber who sort of goes um off and threatens to upend the whole system uh so it yeah it was one of the it's it it you know it didn't you know it wasn't a bestseller or anything but it did break my career open definitely like mm -hmm. it got it got a lot of attention from the right people um you know that's the book that Gamel del toro read and got him interested in me so like it, it did open a lot of doors um and it continues to be one of my most popular books it's the book that oh, inspires the most tattoos by far like what do I, people get tattooed from that like the shovel or is it the, like they'll they'll get shovels i've seen there's a thing in the book called the rotters book mm -hmm. which is polaroids of uh bodies in the graves by this one rogue grave robber um, so I'll get the book. I'll get, um, there's a lot of icons in the book. Like I know someone who has this, uh, on her leg, like on her femur is a broken femur, which there's this, there's this, the, the, the boy in the book carries this broken femur of his mother with him from her grave. It, I mean, it's a lot, but, uh, for some reason it inspires tattoos. So I don't know why. That feels like a Del Toro book. Cause it has this childlike fairy tale quality to it even though it is about grave robbing i can see him kind of gravitating towards that how did um your relationship with him expand into you know troll hunter and um the the um, shape, of shape of water like how did it keep going um well yeah i mean there was no relationship at first i guess you just read the book and liked it um mm -hmm. i'm none the wiser really uh but at some point he had he had sold Troll Hunters, the novel, not mm -hmm. the show, was adapted later from the novel, um, to Disney and uh, wanted a co-author for it. And I think 
Rodgers was just kind of fresh in his mind, maybe. And it dealt with kids of kind of close to the same age. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, he just contacted me through my agent um, and sort of told me, my agent, you know, told me about what the project was and if I was interested. So I went up to um, Toronto. So he was shooting Pacific Rim up there. And we we had a very now famous breakfast uh, where um, we talked out troll hunters and got along great and really hit it off. And um, and then sort of at some point in the uh, breakfast, totally randomly expecting, not expecting anything from it. I was like, oh, you'd love this idea I have about, um, it's kind of like Kutra from the Black Lagoon, but it's like this janitor who, who breaks them out of a lab and puts them in her uh, bathtub. So that breakfast was also the origin of Shape of Water. Um, And he just, uh, I remember he just kind of got quiet and said, that's beautiful. I love that. Mm. Um, And then I felt kind of cheesy. So I was like, I tried to get it back to Troll Hunters, but he kept trying to talk about this other thing. Um, And so anyway, that's kind of the origin of that uh, project. Um, how is he so we've, we've, as a, oh, I was just going to ask how he was as a collaborator. Is he a like because he's a visual director and a writer? Is he largely talking out loud in your collaborations or is he writing to you and then you're writing based on his yeah, writing? Did you guys shift drafts back and forth well, or was it more of kind of a, a talking collaboration? It's it was different for both books. Um, Shape of Water was a, a unique uh, a unique project in that it was something I was planning to write as a novel. Um you know, it was an idea I had back when I was in elementary school. Oh, wow. Like that. Uh, and I just sort of carried along with me through the years, just that small premise that I just shared with you. Um, and I mentioned to him sort of offhandedly, and uh, he, he wanted to make it to a movie, but, you know, I didn't really think it was going to happen. So I kept sort of in the background developing it as a book. Um, and eventually, all of a sudden, he got hot on it and started making it, uh, started going into pre-production on it. So I'm like, this is really happening. So we decided that we would do the book um, and the movie simultaneously, more or less. Wow. Um, so part of part of the book was the script that was he was writing, and plus what I was already planning for the book. So the only thing I can kind of compare it to is 2001. Hmm. Uh, so there's the Arthur C. Clarke put out 2001, the novel, sort of simultaneously with the movie, and they're both the same story, but there's sort of different approaches on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it, it's very unique in that way. Um, I really want to ask before we, you know, kind of get into like the art of writing, you got to do something cool that a lot of writers do not get to do. You got to finish a book for somebody mm-hmm. who had passed away. You got to do the rest of the George Romero novel. What was that like to kind of pick up a partially finished novel and get to keep going with it. And how did you even begin to figure out where to go? This is um, The Living Dead, which was the unfinished George Romero novel that you finished and released in 2018. That's like a hell of an honor. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Romero was my favorite artist, period, in any medium. I will Uh, say, I'm going to jump in because when you talked about Rodders a few minutes ago, I was about to say the way you described the characters in Rodders made me think of Knight Riders. And so as you were talking, I was like, oh, the honor and the system and the... That's such a good comp for it, actually. Elric, you you should read Rodders. I remember you talking about it years ago on the older show, so I got to write. Mm -hmm. Well, what's crazy is I've never had that thought before. (laughs) 
But you're right. It was the, it was the language you were using to talk about the way they work together. I was like, oh, that reminds me of how I felt about Night Riders. Yeah, man, that, that's a great cop. Yeah, I never yeah. thought of that. Um, I, I am I'm embarrassed. But anyway, uh, uh, it, yeah. So I, I grew up on Romero, like literally, like I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was five or six years old, and you know, it, they just played it constantly, of course, because um, the copyright thing. And uh, when when Romero died, uh, he. Um, about a month after he died, his his wife and manager contacted me to see if I'd be willing to uh, take a whack at finishing this epic zombie novel that he'd been working on for years. And uh, I mean, there's kind of two parts to to that conversation. One is just you know the, the practicality of it. I was actually aware of this because every once in a while in interviews he'd reference it that I'm working on this book. So it was vaguely on my radar, uh, but, but you know, it, it had been a few years since I'd heard about it. I certainly wasn't thinking about it um, when he died. Um, and then the second thing is just sort of how stunned I was then and really still am now. It's the one thing in my career that is like, it was, I would, I always say it wasn't a dream because it's so beyond what I could have conceived of as a, as a young fan um, because the book essentially kind of closes the loop mm. of the, the six films he made Oh, um, in a way, the, the novel, which is quite huge. Uh, the way it's structured is there's sort of the first, it's kind of in three acts. There's sort of the first act. And then you could slot the six films mm. kind of right after the first act. And then there's the second and third act. And uh, I, as a sort of side note to the side note, I think I'm the first person who ever really put the films into chronological order. Like there's the order that they were released, but that's separate from the order in which they take place. Uh, and that was important because once I put them in sort of story order, which mm -hmm. is, I think, night, diary, uh, it's been so a while since I've done this list. Mm -hmm. I've but anyway, never even thought about that, that yeah. they are kind of in the same universe happening in a different order. I kind of just took them in chronological order. Yeah, I've actually have it right here. Okay, it's night, diary, survival, dawn, land, and day. So that's the actual oh. order. And some of those are contextual clues. Some Sometimes the movie will say, you know, someone in the movie will say, it's been five years since the, the zombie outbreak. A couple of them were harder to find. I had to go to the novelization of Dawn, I think, um, or the script of one of them to figure it out. But eventually I, I puzzled it together. And once you, you've done that, you can start to trace the actual evolution of zombies versus sort of the more piecemeal version of what's how he's releasing them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, now that I had correctly plotted points one through six, I could then start to better theorize point seven, eight, nine, you know, or whatever. So he had left notes on um, what was missing from the book. Um, but, but there was still a ton that he didn't leave notes on. So it really inevitably had to be a, a, a real Romero Krauss joint because there just wasn't enough there. I still had to make a lot of leaps. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I approached it like I was, uh, fix, you know, 
finishing the Sistine Chapel or something. I took it like super, super seriously and did so much research into not just him as a filmmaker, but him as a, a human being. Like I, you know, I did extensive interviews with people who knew him and his wife mm-hmm. and, and really tried to like, one of the things I did was try to learn what his favorite things were, mm. you know, like famously he loved the op- opera Tales of Hoffman, but what other movies and books and music did he love? And then I would consume those and try to figure out what was George seeing in these works of art that he liked so much and what can I then draw Mm-hmm. from them to try to get into his head a little bit you're a profiler kind of- like fbi profiler but for a novelist yeah. i love it yeah <laughs> what was kind of the wildest one that like oh my gosh i can't believe but that he loves this movie or this tv show was there well, one that was just like oh my god he's so into desperate women he's been watching that for or designing women he's been watching that for years <laughs> no there was nothing like that he certainly uh did not partake in horror mm. uh, almost ever like he never i think you know when he was a kid or a young man before making night, he was he watched some some horror stuff. But as a as sort of an adult, he never watched or read horror. Um, he was really, you know, to sum him up in just a the simplest way, he was sort of your TCM guy. Mm-hmm. Like he would just he, he would always have that on in the background. He loved westerns, um, Ben Hur, you know, just sort of like these kind of classic Hollywood things. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what made him such a great horror filmmaker. Yeah, because he that was makes sense. he was completely out of the the horror feedback loop you know he he wasn't he wasn't doing he wasn't interested in horror which conversely sort of made him a more interesting horror guy i think there was quite a few back then like that like friedkin and people who were just great filmmakers and they took an interest in horror and and they i think they did all have in common though childhood love of horror and i think that is a powerful emotion to come back to at any time it's always there i think so uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I love Romero too, so deeply. Just one of those filmmakers where you, you maybe it's because his films are a little more handmade than a lot of other directors, mm-hmm. and so I think his personality always has come through his work, which is just great. Of the um, dead films, do you have a personal favorite? And also wondering of the latter ones, is there one that you would tell people to maybe go back and visit? Because I think sometimes they came out in a vacuum or found footage is being mm-hmm. done to death, and Diary comes out or Diary didn't do well because of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, sort of my. Sentimental favorite is Night, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but Night, I always say, is is less a movie to me than it is a song. It's like mm-hmm. almost like an album you love. Like I can just play it and sort of endlessly, and it it means things to me that are beyond the actual text. You know, uh, of the original trilogy, I really like Day. Um, the the one that I always wave a flag for is Survival. I mm-hmm. really really like Survival mm-hmm. of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it 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 was destined to sort of miss the the target Romero audience. But then again, most of his films did that too, mm-hmm. uh, where it's, it's so it, particularly survival was so has such a light hand in a way. Like he really was trying to make a, a Western and um, it, it feels, I think to anyone going in there looking for it, Dawn. And that's what most Romero people always mm-hmm. wanted was another always. Dawn. Uh, it, it feels insignificant, um, but it's a, it's a wonderful movie. Um, there's so, there's so much to be plumbed there uh, that would 
you know, you'd have to kind of go back and watch it. We come back. Yeah, and no, I, I, you're making. That's kind of why I asked because those ones I only saw on when they first came out, and you know, they Me didn't too. make as big an impression in the moment because I was still, you know, from Bruiser on, I was a little bit, you know, like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Away, Plus, it was yeah. right around the same time as 28 Days Later becoming 28 Weeks Later, and we were seeing a completely different breed of zombies. And I remember going from that to like a diary, and suddenly it's just you know, kind of a weird statement on texting and being online, but that the zombies kind of went back to the original conceit. And they, I remember mm. being kind of like, but we run now they run. <laughs> um, yeah. And that being kind of a weirder thing. I mean, really, if you haven't seen diary in a while, it's tremendous. Uh, mm. I, I, ha- I had the same sort of reaction when it came out. I was a little disappointed. It was, it was okay, but it doesn't, you know, compared to something like Blair Witch or whatever, it doesn't feel real in that way, but Wow. Talk about like a classic Romero predicting 10 years into the future. Mm. Like what it has to say about like how we're living now is amazing. So that's the one takeaway that I still have now is that it, and I haven't seen it since it first came out in the 2000 aughts, I want to say, late aughts, but that it was all about like, nobody's really even bothering going out anymore. It's just all about living online and talking about the zombies online and things like that. And it feels like that's where we are. Um, even outside of the pandemic, you know, it's still just, you know, yeah, I'm not going to go experience politics. I'll just talk about them online and things mm. like that. Yeah, so. it's it's almost like a thesis film for him, yeah. which uh, where, where it feels I can understand uh, an, uh, a watcher um, not getting into the energy of it, like maybe some of the original films. But uh, there's so so many ideas going on in it. Um, it's yeah, definitely worth a rewatch. What of your work was it that got you the attention of Romero's family? Which which piece in particular was it that got you there? I you know I did I had just come off of the two collaborations with um, Guillermo mm-hmm. and Shape of Water was a big one. Um, uh, everyone was sort of aware of that project, um, so I'm guessing it was that that mm-hmm. I um, I don't really know specifically, but I had done. A, um, a couple collaborations that, that had gone well. Um, and I had met his manager um, or I had uh, drinks with his manager sort of randomly. Uh, the one time I met George in person, uh, 10 years before that. And um, I must've impressed upon him like what a student I was of Romero. Mm. And importantly, and this is important to the family, uh, not necessarily his uh, zombie films, mm-hmm. um, like those two, but I was also just as into his non-zombie films, which I think um, if you're... Uh, Season of the it, Witch and Martin are brilliant, absolutely brilliant, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think he's ever made a bad film. We could, I'm sure we could, mm. we could argue about that, but uh, so that that helped, I think. Um, it, I, I, but I honestly don't. No, there were there were more obvious choices, but I don't. The only thing I can say for myself is I don't know that they could have found him who would have worked as hard as mm, I did. That's great. Yeah, that's, uh, that's beautiful. And you thing. didn't you end up writing some creep show too later? Yeah, I did two episodes of the TV show. Yeah, so yeah. there's a nice continuity. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so going back to kind of your your kind of novels that come out of nowhere. What is your process? Like, I'm always fascinated, but like we've asked Grady Hendrix, we've asked Stephen Graham Jones, we've asked every writer that comes on the show, Paul Tremblay, where once you have an idea, once it's just, hey, Coalition of Grave Robbers, 
Where do you start? How do you kind of get going? Do you just jump right in and start writing? Are you an outliner? You know, how, what's your process? And then even kind of what is your day to day? Do you sit down and write for eight hours? Do you finish the whole novel in a week? Do you, you know, do 500 words a day and it takes you a year? Kind of what's your process for it? Yeah. As far as like the planning of it, um, you know, as Shape of Water reveals, and it's not the only one, uh, it sometimes my ideas take decades to figure out. I've had two of my books came from elementary school, I, I think. Um, so usually what happens is I, I have these, you know, these little notebooks over here um, and I'll just write the ideas down. And what usually has to happen is I have to have a, a, a collision of two ideas. And that's usually the book's premise. Uh, and that first idea can exist, you know, when I'm in elementary school, but it might take decades for that next, the thing to hit it and kind of make a spark. And that's, that's the book. Uh, the prop, my process is I, I'm very non-precious about it. Um, I just work like I'm, I'm at a factory. I, I wake up, I go right, I sit down right here at this screen and I work all day. Um, I write as, as much as I can for, for most of my career. Um, I've written every free, free hour, uh, a, a let's say five or six years ago, I agreed to take Sundays off, <laughs> uh, which is still difficult for me, but I'm getting better at it. Do you do uh, eight hour days? Yes. Yes. That's impressive. And, and some of those, some days, those last few hours will be business. Like okay. I've just got business emails I have to attend to. Um, but so I, I do six days a week now. Oh my uh, gosh. But this isn't this isn't unpleasant for me. This is what I want to be doing all the time. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is, you know. Like I said, when I was a kid and I was just writing, putting things in a drawer. I just there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. It's it's uh, really super enjoyable for me to write. Like this is a slight exaggeration, but like when a book actually comes out, um, I wouldn't call it a, an annoyance, but it's like it's not something I I really get excited about. Like. Uh, I have to kind of pause and, you know, promote it a little bit or whatever. Uh, but it doesn't do anything for me, really. Like, it's it's just the writing. Um, I could probably be happy as a Salinger type character who just <laughs> stops publishing. And if I was independently wealthy and just put all my books into a cabinet for them to to, to publish after I'm dead. <laughs> uh, that's that's my process. I am I am an outliner, though. Uh, it kind of counterintuitively, I find that it. It, uh, for me anyway, frees me up actually mm-hmm. to, to sort of to know where the points are allows me on a daily basis to let go of worrying about where it's going and just kind of go wild with the actual prose because uh, I sort of know the next point where that's going to be. So today I don't have to think about it. I can just go go crazy and yeah. uh do you have to have the entire outline before you can even begin writing or could you have the bulk of it and then start? There is often a sort of test period where I have the, the notion um, and I want to see if I can kind of fall in love with it. So I'll write X number of pages. It could be 10 pages. It could be 50, just making sure that it's something I want to, particularly if it's very complicated or very long before I spend oodles of time outlining because I do intensive outline outlines themselves can be 50 pages, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, there might be a little bit of 
free writing sort of that beginning. Um, and then I've had the inverse happen where I've outlined something extensively. I've got this Western that I've been beating my head against the wall for, for a decade now where I have multiple outlines and have read dozens and dozens of books. And every time I try to write it, I write one or two pages. And I'm like, nope, mm. still not right. Still, I don't have the voice. Mm. That's I, most writers I know have rewritten the same project like six times and then are still fighting. And it's the one that they will continue to rewrite. So, yeah. Um, so let's dig into whale fall. So my first question with this one, this seems like it's meticulously researched because you are getting so much into kind of the science of being underwater of the squid of the whale itself, of the internal anatomy of how the actual descent would work. Who did you talk to and how much research did you do? Like, I assume there's interviews involved in this. Yeah, I did all the research. That's amazing. <laughs> That's how much, all of it. Uh, I don't know anything about whales. Like, this is like the absolute opposite of, um, right, what you know, you know? Like, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about whales. I didn't know particularly know that much about the ocean. I certainly didn't know anything about diving. So I was starting at nil. Uh, so... The, the first step was to contact whale scientists, basically, and ask them, uh, I'm skipping some steps here. Uh, it's all in the author's note if you um, listeners want to read it in more detail. But uh, essentially, question one was, could someone really be swallowed? Um, and it turns out they could if it's a sperm whale. If the diver was kind of slender and the sperm whale was particularly large, uh, sperm whales have these giant, you know, big throats because they are eating squid all day. Whereas most other squid have, uh, I'm sorry, most other whales have these tiny little throats that could mm. never swallow you. So when you see these videos of people kind of ending up in whale mouths, generally those are humpback whales. There's no chance of them being swallowed. And all the headlines that say kayak are swallowed by whales are misleading. They've, they've been mouthed by whales, which is, I'm not discounting how scary that would be, but it's not <laughs> the same as being uh, swallowed. So basically, yeah, um, spent about three months. So I had to front load all the research because there's not really any books about this. Um, just interviewing scientists and kind of inch by inch figuring out what well, inside of a whale is like. And so I would say, what's okay, you're in the stomach. What's right here? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What happens if you touch it? Um, could you move this way and what's over there? And so this kind of arduous process of figuring out the stomach and the throat and the mouth and all that and starting to piece together what was possible inside um, a stomach, you know, like what, what question two after was, was it possible? was like, is there any air in there? So now there's not. So that meant the uh, diver had to be a scuba diver would have to have their own air supply. Uh, so the whole book takes place in about 90 minutes. Mm. Um, the the diver, once he's swallowed, has about one hour of air left. So the the bulk of the book is that one hour of trying to get out. And and the the you know the methods he attempts were you know I could never come up with because I don't know enough. Uh, there were sort of collaborative brainstorms with the scientists and the things they came up with were just fantastic. Were you a Pinocchio kid or a Moby Dick? I mean, Moby Dick, whether it's film or book, you know, a lot of us were inundated at a young age with it in classes, especially, but did either of them have a particularly significant effect or not really? No, no. I mean, I, I, 
I had never read Moby Dick before starting this book. Mm. Uh, as soon as I decided to do it, I read it right away and really liked it. Yeah, it's, um, um, Pinocchio didn't, um, you know, I, I saw it and remembered it, but it didn't have any out over overly large influence on my life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Moby Dick is one of those ones that l the ideas in it you can become kind of obsessed by. There's just idea, oh, just yeah. like the story itself. But there's a pretty good John Huston version that I remember watching once, going, "Oh, it's pretty interesting." But that's the is that the one with Gregory Peck? Yeah, Gregory Peck. Yeah, like I watched all the Moby mm -hmm. Dicks too, um, and there's a bunch, and I I don't particularly like any of them, yeah. but. I always love the whales. Mm -hmm. Like the whales in every version of Moby Dick are awesome. Yeah, uh, I could do without the rest of the movies, but like then the whale in the uh, John Huston version yeah. is so the white kind so of quality. Yeah, the color yeah. and stuff is really cool. Yeah, yeah, What's great weird, monsters. As a kid, I had seen Pinocchio and everything, and of course knew the story. I'd seen the Disney cartoon, even though that they call it a whale in it, and its name's Monstro, the whale. For some reason, I had always thought it was a shark because being part of Jaws generation, mm -hmm. sharks eat people, not whales. Mm. And it wasn't until years, years, years later when I was on the ride at Disney World in Florida when I was like, that's a whale. And suddenly it hit me that it was not a shark eating people because that's just where my mind had always went. Um, and even now the one here at Disneyland that I'm more familiar with, they have this really cool part of the ride where it kind of rises up and you actually go into the whale. It's really cool the way that. They oh, no it. kidding. Mm -hmm. it's a cool part of the ride they also have this thing with pinocchio where um they get captured and taken to pleasure island where they, you, they actually go into the cage and it spins you around inside the cage and then you keep going it's a pretty cool part mm -hmm. of it so um but the whale part definitely but okay so whale fall comes out and this like sold out right like there was a point where you could not find copies of this correct yeah that was i don't know how to feel about that like it it <laughs> It's good and bad, you know, like it, it essentially, except for Amazon and Barnes and Noble who handle their own distribution mm -hmm. in some magical way. Um, yeah, it became impossible to get after one day. Um, mm. So, which sounds good. Like they had, they reprinted it four times in four days uh, trying to catch wow. up to demand. Um, but the downside of that, of course, is no bookstores had it for a good week or so. Um, mom and pop bookstores, you know. Mm. Uh, so nobody, I just got deluged with, um, we, we can't find it. And, uh, my bookstore doesn't have it. They're all sold out. That they they can't acquire it. Um, ah. So that was kind of a, a bummer. But but yeah, it was the, the demand was obviously nice to see. How does that even yeah. happen in the modern age? Is it through like in terms of the awareness of the book before it hits? And so there's an interest in it. Is it based on your previous work, do you think? Or was there something in the story that had, you know, been publicized that would get people excited? I'm always just curious because publishing has changed just so much. And the bookstores kind of been coming back in the last few years, which has been kind of exciting. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't there was a lot of stuff going on with this book. Like it was on the big thing, I think, was it was on the front cover of the New York Times book review. And that's like a yeah. To this day, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I think probably drove a lot of attention uh, uh, of literary types, yeah. um, and it had a few other hits. And of course, you know, it was optioned for a film. That that always drives a little bit of uh, attention. Mm -hmm. So I think it just it hit enough of these things. But mostly, I think it's just word of mouth regarding the premise, like the, the premise. 
premise does something to people. It always was, has. You know, this actually came up in a meeting that I was in yesterday about the importance of a log line that you can sum up in like six words or less. And dude trapped in whale does yeah. it. Um, like that is it right there. And so it is, it's like that perfect log line. It's such a cool, just concise premise that as soon as you hear that, you're like, okay, I'm in. Yeah. And I've never had a book that I could sum up in a sentence before. Usually if you ask me what my book is, I, I mumble for an, a minute and never really figure it out, but you can, you can sum this up in one sentence and it, it works. I think it like, there's something, it, it triggers something in the brain, like it, some primordial part of our brain, which we remember, you know, when we were early human beings and we might be eaten and swallowed by things, you know, we had to, we actually had to worry about that. And uh, over time that has, that fear has gone away, but it's still in there part of our, our, our brain. And this premise, you, you, even before I wrote the book, I would tell it certain people, I'm thinking about doing this book on this. And they would just like, something would just activate them. Like they would understand the stakes immediately. There's a reason this is one of our oldest stories. Like it just does something to us. Um, and what was so shocking to me when I first came up with the premise is that no one had done it before. Like yeah. people had had done lots of person inside whale in sort of metaphorical or magical realism type of ways, but nobody had ever taken it seriously in a scientific way. Mm -hmm. And I'm now realizing, like, I didn't, I was immediately thinking, jo you know, no, Moby Dick. And now I'm like, Jonah and the Whale, this is such an old story. It's biblical. Um, but yeah, yeah, we've never seen the horror version of it before. Yeah, it, it blew my mind. Yeah. So I'm sure you can't say much about the option, but this was, it was Ron Howard's company, right? Uh, yes, it was Imagine. That is awesome. So uh, any plans or is it just it's been optioned and that's kind of where it's at because of the strike and everything Unf at this unfortunately point. that's where it's at you know it's sort of when it happened it was right at the time where we had to stop talking yeah. uh so that's all that's all that is known at the moment that's okay it's there and it's simmering and that's that's all i need to get my next aquatic horror film so i'm anxious for it so now that this is out, you've just completed the book tour on this one. Kind of, are you uh, back to, or you got a couple more stops? I got a lot more stops actually, oh. um, but I did the first leg, which was the intensive part. So that's where you're going city to city yeah. um, and flying every single day. And uh, that part's over. So uh, kind of without telling us what the book is, what's the new research obsession? Like what's the next thing that you're just like, oh, I'm calling these people and really diving into this every mm -hmm. day. Um, I, what I wrote directly after Whale Fall, um, is a uh, science fiction book, um, nice. really science fiction, science fiction horror. Like it is kind of the most horrifying thing I've ever written, but it, technically it's science fiction. Challenge accepted. Uh, okay. So, so that was a whole different kind of, um, task. It was, there were, it was a lot of research just about the cosmos, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, when inventing, I tried to, it's not like Wellfall is as far as me and my scientists can determine is a hundred percent scientifically accurate. It sounds like I'm describing the human centipede here, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, that's not the case with the sci-fi book, but I tried to get kind of close. So I was trying to understand to some degree, like quantum physics and 
uh, quarks, <laughs> you black holes, you name it. I was, I was trying to have a, a base basis in, in reality. Um, it's not as specific as a whale and every, every day is, was its own new sort of investigation. Um, I don't think I've gone hardcore into one topic like the whale since the whale, but it hasn't been that long. So I will soon, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, we like deep cuts here. If you listen to this, uh, do you have a recommendation, a film recommendation for the people? doesn't have to be for us. Well, it could be saying you love an obs- a film you has gone under. Oh, years. You know, yeah, deep I cut have, film. I'll take a deep cut book as well. Cause I know you're an avid reader too. I, I have been waiting for this question for, that's why I wasn't going to let you off the hook. I knew you, I knew. Uh, and <laughs> there's so much I could say. And first of all, may I, you can cut this out if you want, but may I all just take this moment to thank both of you for, for doing this show. Why would we doing... cut this out? <laughs> no, we're keeping this <laughs> in. No this us. is good stuff. Keep it. <laughs> and for doing deep cuts, especially um, it's, I, I, I am, you know, truly uh, someone who uh, seeks out the, the deepest and weirdest stuff and kindred spirit. Uh, yeah. It, and you guys are one of the few few uh people who uh who will mention things that i don't know hmm. and that's really uh rare and highly valued and you know listening to you guys over the years and you know particularly during um, the pandemic was such such a joy yeah, that's and great. Appreciate it's, it. thank it, you it uh i it it actually means a lot to me your show so i'm, I'm really yeah, thankful nice. yeah. to, to you guys for for doing what you do uh, that aside, schmaltz aside. I'm not tearing up here, Daniel. This yeah. is like a serious thing here. So yeah. We just Thank assume you. no one listens. We just could do this together to <laughs> yeah. see each other and talk about movies. That's the weirdest <laughs> thing is Elric and I would do this whether anybody listens right. or not. Probably. Because we we've probably discovered would. we'll go meet at coffee shops and this is still what it devolves into. Is deep just cuts, like, yeah. yeah, deep cuts. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God, I watched this thing. I found this weird thing out of Hong Kong we should watch next week. And so it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's happening with or without the show. <laughs> the fact that people listen, we're just honored to have here. Particularly deep cuts yeah. is just something I, I never, never would miss. Uh, so th- there's a lot I could say here and we could we could go on and on <laughs> depending on how, how deep you want to get. But I do did want to mention one filmmaker who I don't think a lot of people know about. I have my notebook ready to go. And let's let's see if you guys know him. His name is Brian Pollan. Doesn't okay. doesn't jump out okay. straight away. All right, so he's this guy who's for the past I want to say ten or fifteen years has been making homemade movies in, from what I can tell, his garage and his basement. Hmm. These are like zero budget, um, shot on video. All they're, they're they're just all like gore films but with incredible technique. Like, you know, you can tell it's, you know, rubber and silicone and all that. Um, but the the heart that this guy puts into these movies, which are just disgusting, <laughs> um, the effects in their own way are truly stunning. Uh, and every time he puts on a movie, I, I buy it. Um, you can't go wrong with any of his stuff. My favorite of his movies is called Fetus. <laughs> uh, but the trick with Brian Pollan is, um, and I don't know why this is, is his he his movies aren't are very difficult to find, which is kind of part of the charm. You have to kind of go to his website 
which frequently doesn't seem to work <laughs> and, and order uh, the, the DVDs directly from him. Wow. He's creating his own demand. This is brilliant. Uh, and sometimes you'll try to order a movie and it won't work. So then I would, I would suggest then just emailing him and say, I tried to order this movie. So it's like, there's a, there's sort of these roadblocks to getting to his movies and they are, boy, are they not, every, they're not going to be everyone's cup of tea to say the least. Uh, but I'm just fascinated by them. And uh, for, for movies that are so relentlessly disgusting, I find them kind of moving in a way mm-hmm. like nice. uh they're so he believes in what he's doing so intensely uh, without regard to to commercial success or really mass interest. Uh, but he's always one upping himself with effects. And now I'm going to do more. I'm doing more. And I don't know who's watching these things besides me. Uh, how, but how did you find like how did you first find any of his work? I wish I could tell you. I can't remember. Yeah, it was it, it was. Uh, I feel, six or seven years ago, I feel like it somehow someone was talking about like really, really off, off the map stuff. And Brian Pollan came up um, and I wrote it down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then realized I couldn't find any of the stuff and took a risk and just ordered it from this site that seemed slightly suspicious. <laughs> um but did but, is fetus uh, a good one to jump in on? Because I looked at that yeah, picture and it's like, oh, okay, I could watch this. Yeah, yeah, I would. I would start with that. Um, you'll know pretty quickly <laughs> if it's for you or not. Right. Um, but I'm googling I, this like right now, and I am so intrigued. You know how much we love our regional horror, yeah. so this just kind of speaks to all Especially of that. Especially people who can keep doing it. Like, I mean, what you're saying uh-huh. about anyone yeah. who can continue a cycle—that's fascinating. Yeah. He's uber regional, like, like his garage <laughs> regional. Uh, but I just, I really can't get enough of this guy. Um, and uh, I, I, I would love to bring more attention to him. You just did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just happened. This is it. Okay, he's suddenly going to get like a boom on his website when it works, and it's going to be like, what the heck? So yeah, yeah I'm going to probably it's gonna be then... Elric and I, and that's it. That's us. That's or, us. or we're all going to get a bunch of emails. Every saying, yeah. What were you talking? I ordered this and I okay. I can't stand it. But you won't know to a try. That's a great thing. That's there'll okay. Be, there will be some people out there like me who this just hits every every trigger of, especially if you like made movies as a kid yourself or yeah. something. Like this is just gonna blow your head off. Well, that's what I like about the Bleeding Skull book. It's like you know, eighty percent of them are going to be unwatchable, but they're fascinating to hunt for some of those. And just there's so yeah. many different types of movies in there. So. That's why I yeah. love Vinegar Syndrome so much is they will release stuff that I'm like, I don't know if it's good or not, but I've never seen it. Yeah. And now I'm watching it. And so I end up watching everything and they're hit or miss. Yeah. But sometimes I find amazing gems in there. And that's wonderful. The, I'm not a huge movie collector, but the one label that I buy everything from is Bleeding Skull. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Because that, again, is that's just my wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. I love, love regional yeah love it did too. you see uh before we go did you see that we talked about a little while ago a documentary about the website order horror where you would say i need a girl being carried by a monster and the guys would make you these movies and it was all through the oh, yeah. 2000s i think it's called the murder wave or something it's on to be it's no. freaking it's so Holy your jam shit. it couldn't be more this... your jam trust me the murder wave? i think it's murder wave it, it was really cool because it was just like this very popular this guy who ran the site for you know a couple decades where 
people write their fetishes, horror, horror film version fetishes, and he made these little short horror films. He'd for go them. make movies for them. And, it was like, so and they interesting. would pay for it. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Well, and you know, did you that, see Star Time? That was like my favorite one from last year that was like totally like a vinegar syndrome, like bleeding skull. I still need to see that one too. It's on my list because you have mentioned it a few times. Yeah. Um, and I haven't. I need to see that. Too. Is, it on, is it on Tubi? I watched it on, it was streaming on there. They have like a linear channel that they play through um, Night Flight. And that's where oh, it happened yeah, yeah. upon it. But I think that there is a DVD release of it. I'm fairly I think, sure. I think I stumbled upon it recently and I was like, oh, I remembered you talking. Okay, here's the title. Mail Order Murder. And then the story of Wave Productions, and it's w.a.v.e. And that's so, I, I, again, I hadn't even heard of Wave Productions. I hadn't heard of any of this. Stumbled upon it, and I was like, it's not perfect, but man, is it like, it's just cool. It's like, I wish I had been around when he was in his peak. I would have done it. I would have paid for somebody to make me a weird <laughs> horror fetish film. And the number one is, is Monsters <laughs> Carrying Woman is like the number one, or Woman in Quicksand is another one that he had to do a lot. Woman in Quicksand? <laughs> I love Woman in Quicksand. I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> it's so been dreaming of that for years. It's so specific. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Yeah. It reminds me of, and I grew up in this, like, uh, as I mentioned, a small town in Iowa, but uh, it was a little bit after I uh, went to college, but this production company came into town and I was with someone who made a documentary about this production company. They don't exist anymore, apparently. But their business model was you could hire them. They would come to your small town and they would write and produce a movie featuring your townspeople. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, and create a feature film. These generally weren't horror films, mm-hmm. they weren't genre films, really. Uh, but what a weird concept. And these yeah. the and talking about movies that are off the map because the only people who buy them are, are the people who yeah. are in the, the these small towns. God, I'd go. I'd love yeah. to go to a festival of all of those. Like just watch. Oh my them, gosh! You know? I, now I, I need be... a documentary on that. So yeah, some of our documentary filmmakers listening, find that. It also that sounds like how Wes Anderson tale. will win his next Oscar making that movie because you can <laughs> just see him rolling in his troop, rolling into town, making a movie in the Wes Anderson way. It'd be great. Well. Remember when uh, Steven Soderbergh made Bubble? Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, uh, I covered Bubble. And I, and I remember, like, and maybe he was being facetious when he said this, but uh, he, at the time, I remember reading an interview with him, said, like, this is going to be what I do now. Uh-huh. I'm going to go to towns, cast locally, and make movies like that. And he only ever made Bubble like that, yeah. but I was oh, really... Wow. I loved that it's idea. Really it sounds like movie. State in Maine, which is a movie that has not held up kind of like, um, you know, politically correctness. Uh-huh. But that's, I remember that movie. Um, I don't even remember when State in Maine came out, but it was about them like rolling into town, yeah. into this tiny little town and Philip Seymour Hoffman trying to write the town and everything. So mm-hmm. It's a cool idea. Um, it's a cool idea. I like it. Yeah. Before we leave, hit us with a really good book or graphic novel that you've read recently. Ooh, I should have came prepared for this. <laughs> um, this one's always tough because I don't read a ton of like super recent stuff. I, I tend to read all over the, the place. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, okay. It can be an old one. I'm going to go with um, my kind of de facto answer to this. The, the, these days is this writer named Maurice Meyer. Hmm. Um, Meyer's like M-E-I-J-E-R. Uh, and she's one of my favorite writers right now. She is, um, she's not online, which makes her practically a, a Brian Pollan. She's mysterious <laughs> and untraceable. Uh, 
but she's written a few uh, books of uh, short stories and one novel, which I just just blew me away, called The Seventh Mansion. Hmm. Um, that is, in some ways, kind of about necrophilia, kind of, uh, but is a really, really beautiful book. Uh, and that's that again is another real sweet spot for me. Um, and stuff and kind of what I've modeled my career after or tried to is to take something that's really appalling. Grave robbing would be a great example and trying to turn it into something kind of beautiful or, or mm-hmm. see how far I can push it and still maintain um, a reader's sympathy for the, for what's happening. Um, so I, I'm a big, huge fan of, of the seventh mansion. I feel like symmetry, symmetry man does that a little bit. I always thought, you know, as a movie, because it's quite beautiful and quite sexy and, but it shouldn't be, (laughs) it should be the opposite of all those things. It's weird. I look back at that movie and I see it almost as a romance film every single time. And then you stop and think about what it's about and you're like, Oh, uh, okay. But yeah, yeah, it's so romantic and beautiful and fairy tale-ish. Yeah. Yeah, I love that trick, you know, Mm. where you get the, uh, you get the audience going with an idea that they, they really shouldn't. And suddenly they they may or may not wake up at some point and say, wait a minute, how am I rooting for this? Yeah. yeah. You know, like that's that's my favorite thing to to do or to have done to me. That's great. That is beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us tonight. Thanks. What is the next stop on the book tour? Uh, this weekend, I'm going to Maine, actually. <laughs> so I have a few events in Bangor, Maine. Oh, oh hey, you just swing by that King Mansion hmm. way from the, the driveway. Yeah, that's King, awesome. I'll look it up. I'll look that guy up. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's I, I guess he's known in Bangor, Maine. Kind he's of like a, he, totally he's a, regional. <laughs> he's a regional writer, right? <laughs> regional writer. I'm sure that the locals know him. It's cool. So. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Daniel. We will have you back for the next one. I can't wait for the cosmic one. Yes, let's let's not make it uh, another 10 years. Another 10 years. Come back about movies. We'll just get you all about some movies you love next time. Hell yeah. We'll bring you on Deep Cut. We never have guests on Deep Cut. We should totally do that. I got got nothing but Deep Cuts. We'll bring you on Deep Cuts and we can just totally geek out. So yeah, we'll set that up. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And for those of you at home, feel free if you just need a show during our off weeks, feel free to go to Deep Cuts, our Patreon show where we get all types of weird and just all types of stuff that Elric and I see that we can't find. This is our new stuff. That's our weird old stuff. That's how we break it down. yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So thank you all so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.